Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, my name is Alison McGuire and I'm head of the Department of Health Policy at the LSE. It's my great pleasure to introduce someone who will be known to many of you, uh, Professor Chris Murray who's Chair of Health Metrics Sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle and Director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Chris is a physician and health economist and his work focuses on developing methods for empirical research to strengthen health measurement, assess healthcare system performance and to assess and understand the drivers of health. Just before I hand over a couple of housekeeping issues, Professor Murray will talk for approximately 40 minutes, which will allow some time for questions at the end of his talk. For your questions, please enter those in the Q&A box. Include your name and affiliation, please, and I'll pass these on. Um, I last saw Professor Murray present a live talk within the Anthropological Museum at the Oxford University some years ago, many years ago. But COVID has, of course, changed these events and many other aspects of our lives over the past years, including how these events are run. So without further ado, I'm going to pass over to Professor Murray to present the third LSE Department of Health Policy annual lecture on the topic of the impact of COVID-19 on global health. Over to you, Chris. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Great honor to give this um annual lecture, and I'm going to share slides just to confirm that you are seeing the slides. Yep, we are. Great. So I want to cover three topics. Uh, I want to talk about what we know about COVID so far, a little bit about what's happening in 2022, and then some uh, quite uh, personal views about how I think the longer-term effects uh, of this last two years on global health. So let me start with uh, just some data on how age-related COVID mortality is. Uh, this will be published in next week, I believe, in The Lancet. Uh, and this shows uh, all the death by all the data on mortality by age, um, and then fitting a curve to that. And you get this typical J-shaped curve uh, of mortality by age. And I think the key thing to recognize here is that, that I'm sure you all know, but just the numbers matter, that the risk of death goes up much more steeply for COVID than uh, mortality on average. So mortality on average would go up about, let's say, 4% per single year of age uh, at the global level, and COVID goes up about 10% per single year of age. We get the basic result that age 100 the death rate is going to be 10,000 times higher than the death rate at age 10. Uh, you'll see why this matters in, in a moment. Now, we have, of course, like many, interested in the total impact of COVID on death rates. And so we have, again, forthcoming in the next couple of weeks in The Lancet, uh, our assessment of excess mortality and I'm not going to belabor the methods uh, because I want to focus on the results, but just to say that uh, like any effort at looking at excess mortality, we've looked systematically at trying to find all the available data. We find weekly or monthly data for about 340 locations. Those are national or in the case of large countries, subnational locations, you know, for example, 12 states in India. Um, all the states of Brazil and Mexico and the US, uh, uh, for example. And then we figure out expected deaths based on both the seasonal pattern and then fitting six different models to what's not seasonal and then getting an ensemble of that to get the, the uh, expected death rate. Uh, and here's just an example on the right for the US. The, the blue line is the combined combination of seasonality and the secular trend. And then the difference is excess deaths. So when we do that and we look globally through 2020 and 2021, you come up with about 18 million deaths in the world uh, from COVID. 
and I'll do a little bit of context setting uh, using the global burden of disease work in a moment. But roughly speaking, this is about a 20% or slightly less increase each year in global mortality. So a very substantial mortality shock, of course. And you can see the countries on this uh, stacked bar diagram that have had the largest death counts, uh, India at the top, and then large death counts in, in Russia, in the United States, in Brazil, in Mexico, and then some where the data is much less sure, like Indonesia, where essentially we're inferring the likely mortality from a, a regression model because there isn't weekly or monthly registration data in Indonesia. Now, there's another thing to note here is that according to the modeling exercise, there's quite considerable mortality in Sub-Saharan Africa. The only place with direct measurement there is South Africa. Now, for context, uh, the age pattern of mortality for COVID is very skewed to the high end of ages. This is pre-COVID global mortality by age. The, the mid-blue color there is cardiovascular disease. And so, uh, you know, COVID is very large. It's not as big as all cardiovascular disease put together, but it is as big as, you know, single causes like ischemic heart disease or stroke. So, uh, you know, put the context there. The other thing to note is that unlike at the global level, as shown here, where you have in the orange red colors, many deaths from infectious diseases at young age, COVID would not be even visible on this diagram uh, at the younger ages um, in terms of the impact. Okay, so now if we look at the excess death rate, so just COVID deaths is estimated divided by population, um, you know, uh, by country around the world, you can start to see the patterns that have emerged during the pandemic with the perhaps the highest crude death rates in uh, Peru and Bolivia and Ecuador, some states in Mexico, uh, and then dominantly uh, countries in Eastern Europe and Russia, and then Southern Africa, and huge numbers as we talked about in India, but the crude death rates are high, but not uh, in, the, in the highest category. And then you have some standout sort of uh, places where the death rates seem low. Southeast Asia for a number of countries uh, so far, of course, China, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan and Taiwan, you know, Norway has done rather well as is Ireland, and then Canada has done quite well. And then the, the sort of north-south gradient in the US states. So very mixed, uh, even within similar economic zones, uh, results on terms of uh, protecting people from dying from COVID. Now, that graph was the data as it comes and, and all the modeling as it comes. Uh, but since we know age is so dominant as a risk factor, and just to put that in context, uh, another critical risk factor is obesity. But if you want to translate obese versus non-obese, that really turns into about four years of age. So, you know, age is just overwhelmingly the risk factor uh, that drives the, the patterns. And so we uh, look at, in this diagram, at age standardized death rates from excess death rates. Now we don't have age specific results from many of the places that report weekly or monthly mortality. Some we do. So we've used, uh, you know, a technique from demography called indirect age standardization. You can think of it like a standardized mortality ratio, because what we're doing is we're taking observed excess deaths and dividing by the expected deaths based on the global age pattern of COVID deaths, where we have the data on the age pattern, as well as the local population. So once you do that, you suddenly see a very different pattern. You see that despite the large numbers Many parts of Europe, uh, not Eastern, but Western Europe, and then Greece and Cyprus have done rather well. Uh, and then you see that, in fact, Canada has done very well. And then there uh, are places in Southeast Asia and Sri Lanka appears to have done very well. Uh, and, you know, markedly poor performance or high death rates once you age standardize in most of Sub-Saharan Africa. And certainly Latin America has done particularly poorly. 
So a very different view of uh, COVID once you take away the dominant risk factor of uh, age. Now, this diagram shows the age standardized, indirectly age standardized COVID death rate versus our preferred measure of development status, which we call the sociodemographic index, which is basically just a factor analysis of education, income, and uh, the fertility rate below age 25 as a crude proxy for the status of, of girls or women in society. Uh, that measure SDI, which we dominant, we use a lot in the global burden of disease study, uh, actually is highly predictive of most health outcomes. And on this diagram, the sort of interesting observation here is that uh, once you age standardize, COVID looks like pretty much every other cause uh, of um, poor health. Namely, there's a marked gradient with SDI and that within any band of SDI, you have enormous variation in outcome. Now be careful here because all the data within the triangles are data where we are estimating excess mortality, not directly observing it. And we're estimating it using seroprevalence of COVID, using the reported COVID death rate and using a range, you know, age structure and a variety of other um, covariates, there's about 15 in the model, but it is model data. Whereas the points without the triangles uh, tell you about uh, the actually directly observed excess death rate using weekly or monthly uh, returns. But surprisingly, at least to, to many, is that uh, COVID-19, once you control for age, is not really that different in terms of this marked, markedly lower rates in high uh, SDI and higher rates in low SDI settings. Okay, so enormous impacts of COVID, uh, you know, you know, an, an extraordinary number of deaths, uh, and uh, it it is natural. And I think many of us, and I'm sure many of you, have spent time thinking about what went wrong. And I want to spend a little bit of time on the what went wrong, and then switch to uh, trying to understand which countries fared better. So at the global level, what went wrong, just as a reminder, you know, there were some indications and certainly with the retrospective scope, more indications we can find uh, by early December of something happening in Wuhan. There's an interesting set of analyses using social media uh, conversations on Chinese social media platforms showing a lot of discussion of something happening by about December 12th or 13th uh, from people based in Wuhan, and then the People's Republic of China, the government censoring those commentaries on social media starting around about December 15th. So there was some earlier signals, if we had been alerted to them, uh, that came that are you know maybe two weeks at least, uh, or three weeks before the international health alert went out on January 5th. But yes, there was a sort of, uh, you, you could imagine earlier warnings, but the real problem starts on January 5th, which is the incredible slowness of reaction by the global health community. So in, in, in one of the great ironies, when you have on the BBC, uh, you know, video of people in hazmat suits in Wuhan and, you know, news of the full lockdown of the city, uh, on the 23rd of January, you have the WHO Committee on Public Health Emergencies meeting deciding there wasn't sufficient evidence to declare a public health emergency of any national concern. Why? Because they wanted 100% uh, proof that there was human to human transmission. And then we saw, you know, eventually they come around to it about a week later. But we also see this mindset of uh, waiting for more evidence that things are really bad, um, playing out government by government. Uh, and so, you know, in a sense, what, what the position was being taken at the time was not a, you know, a cost-benefit analysis in any way, shape, or form. It was, uh, you know, this idea that you need to be 100% sure uh, that there's something going on before you take any action. And eventually it was the Italian government that were the first to take major action uh, it, late in February with the lockdown for Lodi province. Now it's worse than it seems about this sort of delayed action because now we find out that, uh, and I give you examples from the US, 
that CDC and the FDA actively suppressed the measurement of um, COVID or of potential transmission uh, aggressively in January and February. In fact, you know, in our own hospital here at the University of Washington, we developed a test by mid-January, like many did, based on the sequence of uh, COVID being released, uh, you know, very, very early in, in, in the process. And that with threatened legal action to use that test on uh, any individuals um, held off until the end of February. And then once that was done, we did detect here in Washington the first uh, confirmed transmission in the community. Uh, imagine if we had deployed that test much earlier and that had been done throughout the US, we would have known about community transmission weeks and weeks before. So why, why do people delay? And I think this getting to the uh, heart of this, what are the incentives around why committees or people in government choose the wait and see strategy uh, is going to be the only way we're going to figure out how to not do this again in the future. Uh, and the wait and see strategy, by the way, was not just in January. We saw it replay for the Delta uh, wave as it spread around the world, where people waited for it to show up in their own country before getting ready for what was absolutely inevitable. So I think the problem here was compounded by A, the people on the groups have been sort of uh, 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 sort of uh, afraid of taking action because previous actions going all the way back to swine flu in the US, uh, but you know more recently H5N1, where action was taken and then people were criticized for that action, made them sort of want to be very cautious. And then secondly was the sense that non-pharmaceutical interventions, including masking and screening travelers and even lockdown were ineffective. So even if they, it sort of encouraged this wait and see strategy because there was the perception you couldn't do much. Uh, and I think if you wanna put it in economic terms, there was a huge overestimation of the cost of, of a false positive of declaring uh, that there was something uh, uh, dangerous and massive, massive underestimation of the cost of inaction. Uh, and, you know, we heard much of the discourse, for example, about suppressing testing in the U.S. was not because people are trying to be malicious, but because they were worried that if there was a false positive test, the public would panic. Okay, so, you know, lots went wrong at the beginning. And then as the pandemic took root around the world, we saw markedly variable um, performance, as we saw with the excess mortality analysis by country. Some of that uh, is perhaps due to contextual factors, you know, high levels of obesity, uh, maybe background exposure to other coronaviruses uh, in the past. Um, and so Tom Boyke and Joe Dealman and, and others uh, uh, here at IHME uh, have taken those results around both uh, excess mortality and cumulative infection and turn that into a statistical analysis of what predicted performance. And they divide that into two groups. Uh, this was published you know, a few weeks ago in The Lancet, so you may or may not have seen it, but they divide into two groups, uh, looking at infection, right, which is really about preventing transmission, and then looking at the infection fatality rate, which is about giving access to uh, appropriate care, given what the knowledge was at each phase of the pandemic. And I won't go into what's, you know, there's, there's a lot of detail in that analysis, uh, and, but I will uh, just jump to the main headlines, which is all the prior measures uh, of, you know, preparedness don't predict at all. You know, the uh, JHE scores, the, uh, you know, Global Health Security Index, these just don't predict who did well in either dimension infections or the infection fatality rate. So all of the thinking around who had prepared well for a pandemic doesn't predict. So that's a pretty sobering observation. Then they looked at various measures of health system capacity. And again, you know, once you correct for testing multiple hypotheses um, with the Bonferroni correction, none of these uh, in the health system capacity are predictive. Uh, when then they looked at um, governance measures, 
And only two measures come through as being predictors of infection. That is higher corruption, more transmission. Those are the two green bars down in the middle uh, panel. And then the most important finding I, we believe is that uh, two measures of trust, trust in government and interpersonal trust turns out to be the only compelling predictors of performance. So societies where trust is high uh, fared better. They explore in this paper the mechanisms and the mechanisms are both through vaccination rates, but also likely adherence to government uh, mandate uh, suggestions and, and behavioral recommendations. And so you get this pattern emerging that something that probably we didn't really think about in the, in the pandemic space uh, turns out to be the most, and actually the only major predictor of performance around the world. And it raises lots of interesting questions about what can we do as uh, in global health uh, and as societies to build trust for the future. Uh, we're, we're probably heading in the opposite direction of increased trust right now and more on that at the end. Now, the second observation during, you know, after the sort of errors of January and February is the surprise role of non-pharmaceutical interventions in stopping transmission. And if you go back to March, um, there was the, the accepted view in the infectious disease modeling world was that uh, behavioral modification, non-pharmaceutical interventions would have a modest impact. And that turned out not to be the case. Uh, the Chinese showed this in Wuhan, and then we learned this uh, repeatedly around the world. Now, within the context of you know, the transmission dynamics modeling that we do and many others do, you can do typical regression testing around looking for the relationship between specific mandates and uh, reductions in transmission. This is analytically very tricky because of course, these mandates tended to come in in blocks. And in fact, between March 10th and April 4th or 5th, almost every country in the world with two or three exceptions put some set of mandates in place. And so you have this incredible, early in the pandemic, enormous collinearity. And then even later in the pandemic where different countries went different ways on the mandates, you have a huge collinearity between clusters of mandates. And so we've had to try to do quite a lot of effort to tease, to, to come up with a sensible way to deal with the collinearity of these mandates. And I won't go through that in great detail, but just to say, I mean, first of all, we've had to build a data set of detailed mandates because I think that the, the issue here is it's really down at the detailed level. It's the, we first started tracking very aggregate mandates like any gathering restrictions or any business closures. And it's just not detailed enough. And that's not what policymakers ask us. They really ask us about, should we close bars? Should we close restaurants? Should we close gyms? And so we've gone into this analysis of 23 detailed mandates, building up a database of those that we'll make public uh, for every country in the world. And you know, here's a couple of regional examples of the percent reduction in transmission from this sort of regression analysis. Again, we, we take the observed um, data, translate that into infections, whole bunch of challenges there, by the way, because cases don't equal infections. The infection detection rate globally runs less than 10%. It's much lower now during Omicron, for example, it was very low at the beginning of the pandemic. Lots of reasons why you can't use as the dependent variable cases. You need to try to get to infections. But once you do that, uh, and you can translate that into, you know, uh, are effective, you can then find, for example, these sort of patterns that stay at home orders, gathering restrictions sort of in proportion to the intensity of the gathering restrictions have quite substantial effects, as do um, you know, some of the uh, things like dining and bar closures definitely have an effect, as do, uh, depending on the region, uh, retail closures as well. Now, interestingly, when we've done this at the regional level, there's very different patterns by school closures. And so that could just be an artifact of collinearity, 
Or it could be that the nature of transmission around schools is not just what happens in the school, it's how kids go to school, how parents pick them up, it's all the associated activities around schooling, which are very different in different societies. And so we're perhaps not surprised that uh, we'd see different findings around school openings. Another issue that emerged during the pandemic, of course, is the enormously inadequate surveillance. And it has confounded our ability to understand what went wrong and to keep ahead of new variants as they emerge. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, the infection detection rate varies from below 0.1% in a number of countries in Africa to over 70% in some countries in Europe. And we know this by comparing seroprevalence data to uh, reported cases. Hospital admissions, which are an incredibly useful source because there's a certain level of severity. So you get a little bit more of a clean signal at the time is not available for many, many countries. Uh, and you know, we've now recently with Omicron started to have this challenge of the inadequate distinction between coming to hospital and dying because of COVID or just with COVID. It didn't really matter pre-Omicron because population level prevalence was not high enough. But in an era where population level prevalence is so high, uh, this turns out to be a really big issue. And then of course, what you know well and the UK has been the best at, which is genomic surveillance, was great in the UK and pretty much nowhere else. And then we've been trying to catch up globally. Last comment on the sort of uh, up till now part of the pandemic. And that is what I think of as the strategic error in a number of countries that vaccination was a strategy for infection control and that vaccination would lead us to herd immunity. And this is certainly the most extreme positioning on this has been the US, but very common in many governments, uh, where the idea was that all we had to do was get vaccination up. Originally, the idea was all we had to do is get vaccination to 70% of adults. Um, many people, including ourselves, said that just wasn't going to work. Uh, even back when we just had alpha around, uh, it was pretty clear there was no way that that would lead to herd immunity. Uh, but even back a year ago or a year and two months ago, it was clear that vaccines were probably going to be less effective blocking infection than blocking symptomatic disease. And even the, the one subarm in the AstraZeneca trial started to show that. And then as post-vaccination studies started to emerge originally from Israel, but then from Qatar, from the UK, from Canada, from the US, it has become progressively clear that vaccination is less effective against infection, markedly so than severe disease, and that the protection against infection wanes faster than it does fortunately for us all against severe disease. But what this means is the in vaccination as infection control strategy was doomed to fail from early on. And despite that, we had governments like the US really banking heavily on this. And then now we're seeing this enormous backlash from the public, which is you promised us it would be over if we got vaccination up. And there was also the justification for uh, you know, putting in mandates was this huge externality on society that if you could just get vaccination to herd immunity, that's the end of the pandemic. But in a setting of waning immunity and actually poor uh, protection against infection and very poor now for Omicron, there is very little externality now associated with vaccination. Okay, so that's sort of up till the end of 2021. What about 2022? Well, here's just the evidence, by the way, on uh, vaccine effectiveness, preventing infection, the meta-analysis around it for the ones that have been best studied. This is Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, &J, and AstraZeneca. And by 25 weeks, for example, you are you know, around about 35% protection pre-Omicron. This is Delta and Alpha and Ancestral, because it's a, a mixture of studies, uh, mostly Alpha and Delta, uh, given the timing of these studies. Um, and even for Moderna, you're still down below you know, the 70% at 25 weeks for infection. So marked waning. And what has 
become clearer and clearer. Studies like the Siren study in the UK, but many other studies now, you put them together, you start to figure out that uh, protection from infection, if you're lucky enough to survive, if you're in the 99% on average that survive infection, uh, and 99.999% if you're young, uh, you actually end up with immunity that wanes more slowly than vaccination, as far as we can tell from the available studies, and is as good as or likely somewhat better than for vaccination. And then on the left panel is our best assessment of cross-variant immunity uh, between the different variants. And this is, you know, the, the evidence is pretty rough here. There's some good studies from the Discovery Health Insurance studies in South Africa, handful of other studies now coming out. The ONS uh, analysis uh, of the infection survey in the UK gives some insights on this as well. But roughly speaking, you know, Omicron is about 50% uh, immune escape and probably beta gamma delta about 80% immune escape on ancestral. Now, for us to understand what's coming with Omicron, we had to elaborate our model and others have tried to do the same to take into account waning immunity and the spread of different variants. And I won't belabor the, the uh, formulation of the model. Uh, just say that it, if you don't do this, you're sort of missing the main event here. And I'll come to that in, in event in a moment. Uh, this slide, we have a separate study running where we've gone and looked at 270 models that we found worldwide for COVID. We've tried to get all of their predictions back in the past. And then we've been trying to look country by country at which models have done the best job of forecasting. And as you might guess, you know, the answer is different by country. Uh, our models shown in red, we do uh, the, pretty well at 10 weeks out in many countries, but certainly not all. And interestingly, one of the best models other than ours in terms of forecast performance has been this machine learning model by one individual, YYG, who developed the model, but only ran it for the first six months of the pandemic. But there's a lot still to be learned in the sort of after action analysis. I only put this up to say that, uh, you know, that the, the model I'm about to show you some results from for Omicron has at least some face validity. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Now, what's different about Omicron and why is this sort of a watershed for, for uh, the pandemic? Highly infectious, markedly more so than Delta. Uh, lots of data, now new data that I don't have on the slide from India, from the Indian cohort that confirms exactly what we saw in South Africa, which is namely really high rates now of mildly or asymptomatic individuals. Uh, for example, the new cohort we've just learned about in India shows that in a five-week period, 70% of Indians were infected with Omicron. And even amongst the vaccinated, uh, essentially not much difference. Uh, again, that's specific to the vaccine there and the timing of vaccination. Lower infection hospitalization rate. And if you do get to hospital, quite a markedly lower uh, hospital fatality rate uh, for much fewer requiring the ICU. And especially if you take into account the with versus um, you know, due to COVID, uh, you see this markedly less severe variant. So if you put it all together, 90% less severe, maybe 95%, maybe even more than that, than Delta. Uh, we've looked at the very limited to date, but what the available data is on vaccine efficacy against Omicron, and even for severe disease, vaccine efficacy is down. So it's fortunate that it's much less severe. And for infection, uh, at, at the peak of immunity after infection, you are seeing even for Moderna, uh, less than 50%. And then the available data now that's emerging shows that immunity against infection for Omicron wanes pretty quickly. You're down to 10%, 15% at 20 weeks. So unless you've been recently infected, uh, uh, vaccinated or had a booster, your protection through vaccination against Omicron is quite limited. So what do we see? 
well, we've seen this massive wave spread everywhere in the world. Uh, there's essentially nowhere that doesn't have Omicron at this point. Um, the many places, not all, we're seeing some interesting patterns in Greece and Austria and the UK. Uh, but in most, the peak is very quick, 25 days. And then cases tend to drop pretty precipitously after the peak. Uh, interestingly, zero COVID countries, which in theory include China, certainly includes China, in theory, New Zealand, although New Zealand moving into phase two, probably no longer a zero COVID country uh, or very soon won't be uh, pursuing that strategy. And so when you put all these numbers together with waning immunity, increased transmissibility, immune escape, uh, at the low end, 50% of the world gets infected with Omicron in this period through to April. At the higher end, those numbers can be you know, 60 to 70%. Uh, this has led to real hospital surges and real pressure on hospitals because you have this massively increased amount of transmission. And even though it's 90% less severe, uh, you do still have this intense pressure on health systems that we've all been witnessing in the last few weeks. Uh, and in fact, you get this double pressure, as you know, between because it's so prevalent at the peak that many staff aren't able to go to, to work. And so you have a reduced staff and increased caseload. Now, this is probably one of the more important slides in thinking about Omicron and the future. It is tracking people into four buckets. In orange is the immunologically naive at the global level. People who have never seen the virus, either through natural infection or a part of the virus through vaccination. The red line are people who've been, um, had infection and been vaccinated. So we're getting up above 60% of the world in that category. And that's the best category to be in, in terms of uh, immune defense. And then the other two categories are the naive vaccinated, never infected, but vaccinated in blue, and the vaccinated, uh, I mean, the, the infected and never vaccinated in green. So the key thing here is that at the end of the Omicron surge, the naive category is vanishingly small, less than 5% of the world's population, could be even smaller than that. Meaning we're just in a different phase of the pandemic in terms of who's at, at highest risk. So that leads us to our forecasts for Omicron in the coming weeks, where uh, you know the, the biggest unknown is when will Omicron take off in China? When will their strategy of strict lockdown, whenever there's an outbreak, when will they decide the economic effect of that is too much? And then we'll see a, a widespread Omicron wave because it isn't probably sustainable for them to be in continuous rolling lockdown. Although that is certainly what they're currently pursuing, but discussing from our understanding, you know, when and how they may change that stance. But the, the, what happens to China on Omicron determines how much, how late into the spring we're going to see uh, infections and then cases. And then in terms of the hospital, you've got this peak in early February uh, in terms of the hospital census count and then peak in deaths and then uh, uh, expected reductions. So at least in these models, without a new variant emerging, big point on that in a moment, uh, we should have been past the peak of deaths now and we should see a steady decline. And certainly in the Northern hemisphere, the combination of high levels of immunity, seasonality would lead us to rather low levels of transmission over the summer. And then in our long range models, Omicron comes back in the winter, but at a relatively modest level. And it's a function of, you know, is there a fourth booster or not? not those sort of issues. So what does that leave us in terms of after the wave? Well, long, as I mentioned, a period of, of low transmission. Uh, we are, as, as we predicted weeks ago, uh, seeing countries now drop restrictions. And that will, we think, continue pretty much everywhere through until April. And so by the time we get to April, bar China, we should see hugely reduced restrictions around the world but we need to make sure that we stay vigilant for the emergence of a new variant. And so what does that mean? That means ongoing efforts at vaccination, question mark about timing of boosters, because you really don't want to do a booster campaign because they don't last that long unless you are in the phase of an upswing. Uh, 
a big emphasis on scaling up access to antivirals because they can reduce mortality by 80 to 90 percent. Uh, and then this issue about if we're not going to see new mandates in the future, because the argument around externalities is getting weaker over time because of the higher levels of immunity, uh, how do we still get the vulnerable, immunocompromised, the elderly, uh, those with lots of comorbidities, to use what we now have learned around masking and social distancing to protect themselves. But I think I feel reasonably um, confident that while COVID will be around for the long term, our strategy for managing it will change to one where we're managing it like many other health risks that are out there, like a bad seasonal flu. Okay, now to round out this uh, discussion, let me make a few comments about ripple effects on global health. One of the biggest impacts of COVID, which will be around potentially for a generation or more, is the huge reduction in education. So take a country like India, schools were shut, some schools, elementary schools opened in November, but closed again when Omicron emerged. So you have children out of school for two years in India. And the question will be, how do you catch up? And will the kids that have been out of school for two years, how many of them will ever go back to school, particularly girls? And so you will have a, we, we fear this long-term cohort effect, which will affect human capital, it'll affect maternal mortality, it'll affect child mortality, and it'll affect a myriad of other aspects of uh, health and, and the consequences will be quite far reaching. Second, phenomenon we're seeing uh, is a phenomenon that had been going on for quite some time, but appeared to accelerate during the uh, COVID pandemic, which is the decline in fertility. So on the left panel is the total fertility rate globally. This is our assessment, not the UN's. And then the blue line is our forecast of the total fertility rate uh, globally. And then, uh, which we published 2019 or, or analyzed in 2019, it was actually published in July of 2020. Uh, and then the two observations for 2019 and 2020, since we did this analysis in the green slots. And fertility is, even though our forecasts of fertility were lower than the UN, uh, reality has turned out in 2019 and 2020 to be quite a bit lower than what we forecast. And over on the right panel, you can see where this is happening, where uh, in pretty much starting around about 2010, uh, a little bit earlier in North America, marked declines in fertility in Western Europe, declines since 2015. Uh, the gray line is basically China, massive declines after that a little surge after uh, stopping the one-child policy. And now you're down to levels that are equal to the high-income parts of um, Asia in the bottom green line. So Markedly low fertility, I think there is going to be an awful lot in global health and in the development space of uh, discussion about what you do about this and how do you uh, protect women's rights in a setting where many governments are starting to be very concerned about the economic effects of low fertility. And, you know, I think finally the UN, UNFPA is starting to see this as a, as a substantial challenge uh, in, in the coming years. Another reflection, I fear that we're going to see a backlash against public health after two years of lockdown. And now this narrative that's emerging that uh, the public was misled and the evidence was misled, uh, you know, that we, we were told not to mask and then to mask. And now there's a counter narrative that says masking didn't work, which of course is not true, at least in our view. Uh, but nevertheless, very confusing information out there. And then this, this promise that vaccination and, and mandates for vaccination would lead to infection control. And now that's certainly not the case for Omicron will, or at least in the US, but I think we're seeing it in Australia, in uh, New Zealand, in, in a number of other countries, lead to a lot of um, essentially distrust of, of messaging from public health and I believe this is something that we will need to manage going forward. There's, of course, a critical discussion that goes back to the first part of this presentation about what do we do to protect ourselves against future pandemics? And there's a lot of initiatives out there. 
Uh, a lot of them about strengthening, which is a very good thing, the multilateral system, mostly WHO, partly the UN. But it's my firm belief that we would we need to bolster those efforts at strengthening the UN with um, essentially independent monitoring and reporting on global health threats. Uh, it's just too great a, a risk for humanity. Uh, and to put it all of your eggs in one basket, you, we, we need to have much more open, transparent, and multiple actors uh, looking at the data and reporting on what potential risks might be. And there's a, some pretty clear steps forward, I think, to, to strengthen uh, early warning and actually to solve that cost of inaction versus action problem that I started with. I think the lesson learned from the pandemic is that health systems are really important. You've got to deliver the right treatment and that perhaps we will see a um, you know, re-emergence of interest in hospitals. Hospitals were, were thought to be a bad thing in a lot of global health discourse. And we learned during the pandemic that they're actually very important for a condition like COVID. And that basic things like oxygen turn out to be very important. And we had a huge blind spots uh, on which hospitals around the world were in a position to treat patients. And if new therapies come along, uh, deliver them uh, in, in the appropriate way. And so I think we'll see a resurgence of interest in the global health arena in the role of hospitals and health systems and how those can be strengthened. And then I think the last slide here is just this era of, um, you know, a lot of the money to support COVID response was, was new money. Uh, but everything that we see in the development assistance space suggests that uh, governments are not going to sustain that higher level of investment in global health. Uh, we will go back to the sort of low number, or not low, but the flatline number since about 2010. And then you're going to have within that envelope of development assistance for health, fierce competition for pandemic preparedness, for climate change, for other you know, threats that are on the horizon, like antimicrobial resistance, and then our more traditional global health agenda, the MDG5 agenda, maternal and child health, AIDS, TB, and malaria, and then new threats around NCDs, which there's a heightened awareness about because of COVID, particularly around the obesity, physical activity, diet access, where that's been after age, one of the most important risk factors for COVID. And then, you know, the, the ongoing interest in the other big cluster of risks that in many parts of the world are getting worse, not better, uh, namely, you know, ambient air pollution and other environmental contamination. So a complex uh, arena looking forward for global health where there will be this intensified competition for what I fear will be a sort of flatline resource pool or even a declining resource pool once the economic effects of the COVID you know, investments uh, start to play out in high income countries. So thank you for your attention. Very happy to answer questions. Great, thanks uh, very much, Chris. That was a great overview, very informative. We have quite a few questions, um, which I'll, I'll start with. Um, uh, one of them, I suppose, um, maybe what, picking up on one of your themes, you, we may be moving to this endemic phase of Omicron and if there's no other variant breaking through with your immunity waning effect through the vaccinations, for example, um, there's a question which relates to um, two things. One is, um, what do you think of the Swedish approach given that kind of uh, environment and the, the background where they basically allowed people, if you paraphrase it, to become infected and natural protection took over rather than anything else. Um, and related to that, um, you know, it, it, is there a, a, an issue about the vaccines not working and trust uh, being further eroded through, through maybe that knowledge? Um, not that they're not working, but their effectiveness is waning. Uh, so uh, on the first question on the sort of um, the Swedish model, uh, pre-Omicron, you know, it's a pretty risky strategy, at least at the individual level. You're, you're you know, taking a 1%, you know, on average, of course, it depends on your age. You're taking a 1% risk of death on average uh, to gain immunity where you can go get a vaccine and get 
you know, not as good, but pretty close immunity uh, for no risk of death. Um, and so that seems like a much better strategy to go with the vaccination route there. With Omicron, it starts to be a, a, diff, a little bit of a different story. And it's sort of a moot point because Omicron is essentially, as far as we can tell, infecting everybody who's susceptible. It's just ripping through populations. We are seeing uh, the, the, the peak come down, not because of human adaptive behavior. It's not because we're masking up more or there's lockdown. We're seeing these peaks come down because there's nobody left to infect. Right. So a very different story. So in, in some sense, you know, some people talk about Omicron as sort of a live attenuated vaccine. It's, it's not that attenuated. We'd like it to be more attenuated, but still it does lead us, as I showed in the, in the presentation, at the end of this in April with very few immunologically naive individuals. So, you know, with high, I think at, at this point, uh, this is why I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable to start lifting mandates at this point in most places. Um, China is a, is a trickier one because you know, they have not got a great vaccine and uh, you can understand a little bit of their reluctance to, to let Omicron fly. On the trust and vaccines, this is why I had that slide there on, on what I call the big mistake, which is by overselling, you know, the vaccines are a miracle that give you this incredible protection against um, severe disease and death. It does wane, but it, the severe disease and death protection wanes much more slowly than for infection. And if we had said out at the beginning that you know these the vaccination is a harm reduction strategy, it reduces the death rate, it re reduces hospitalization, it makes you much less likely to get severely ill, and it is not a strategy to stop the epidemic dead in its tracks, we would not have the problem we have right now. But if you go back and look at how the media and the government in, in many places, not all portrayed vaccines, that was not how they portrayed it. They emphasized infection control. Um, and I think that's where we're going to get the public saying, wait a minute, you, you sold us one idea and now it's another one. And now we really, and, and a number of immunologists and vaccinologists were arguing, wait a second, we didn't power the trials to detect infection you know, blocking. Um, so big challenge. Uh, the, the other thing that, that, that people are fortunately starting to research is new vaccines that might be designed to be more effective in producing immunity in the nose and the, the nasal mucosa, uh, you know, IgA, IgG, and so uh, give you much more likely to have infection blocking uh, potential. And so that line of research may yield new vaccines and we might you know have a second generation of vaccines that are targeting infection uh, control as opposed to just harm reduction and, and that would be you know a huge a huge asset right so uh, Andrew Lone follows up on one of his questions uh, about the the sort of uh, mildness of the uh, omicron infection and the forecast going forward. Uh, of the world if Omicron's dominant, but he says, what's what's the chances of a new but less benign infection taking hold? And then what do we learn from your analysis of the mandates if, if that were the case? Yeah, I mean, I think we will most assuredly see new variants. Uh, the question, and, and for them to spread, and you know, you can show it in the models, and not just our models, but I think uh, lots of people's models. Uh, for it to spread, it has to be pretty infectious uh, and have immune escape on Omicron, right? Uh, if it's, you know, for example, if you reseed something like Delta, uh, it doesn't really spread. It's just not infectious enough, given the level of immunity that we see, at least in the next six, eight months. But if you have something closer to Omicron, so let's say you had Deltacron, a new version, um, you know, what do we do? Um, it's certainly possible. I think some of the evolutionary virologists say less likely, but certainly possible. We just don't know. But still, we will not be in the same situation as we were with Delta, uh, because... When Delta hit the world, 60% uh, of the world was immunologically naive. And so, you know, they're, they're going to have a much higher um, infection fatality rate. Uh, so even if you have sort of waning immunity, there's going to be some immunity there. And then we have this, the, the, the point around antivirals, 
which is Paxlovid trial, 88% reduction in the, in the trial. Uh, we have a completely new strategy, which can take Deltacron and turn it into Omicron. Uh, and so, you know, I think the we're not having enough emphasis currently on how do we get the low income, middle income world, and, and to that extent, the high income world, production capacity on antivirals, whether it's Paxlovid or others that are in, in the pipeline. Uh, super important strategy to, to make us, you know, resilient to future um, variants. And then lastly, we've learned an awful lot from the NPI type analyses that if things really fall apart and there is a new variant, uh, we can tune the uh, interventions uh, rather than sort of blanket stay at home. So, you know, clearly in those analyses, everywhere you look, bars and restaurants and gyms and theaters are a big issue. Businesses turn out not to be, right? You know, you can still have people go and shop, um, it seems. Uh, now, all those analyses are dominated by transmission effects on Delta and Alpha. And given that Omicron is so much more transmissible and future variants are probably going to be in that league to, to really spread, uh, the question there on masking is probably uh, we have to be thinking about N90. If, if you ever go back to having to mask um, in, in any real way, you have to pay more attention to the quality of masking. Okay. Um, we've got time maybe for one, maybe two more questions. Bethany Simmons asks, going right back to the beginning about the age impact as a risk factor being the dominant risk factor. She asks, is that actually masking chronic health conditions so it's not age per se but you know as comorbidities as you get older and other chronic health conditions are maybe being signaled by age and maybe it's that underneath I'm sure you've got an answer to whether that's the true or not you know um the all the the suggestion there is that um age is is an independent factor uh, how do we know? Well, from the studies that are more based on those who go to hospital, because, you know, again, it's really hard to have a true cohort of the infected. But if you look at those who go to hospital, and there's a, there's a bunch of these analyses, Mexico, Brazil, the US, elsewhere, then for, to the extent that you get all the comorbidities recorded, age still comes through as this hugely impactful risk, uh, even when you condition out the known reported comorbidities. Now, of course, there's still going to be some residual comorbidities that are not coded. This is not an infection cohort. But I think it's fair to say, given the evidence that we see, that um, age is really an independent risk factor. And then you ask why, and it has to have something to do with sort of uh, the, the waning of immune function with age. You know, if, for, for those of you who study TB, this is, uh, you know, age-related energy is a well-known phenomenon. So it's not a surprise, I think, to most immunologists that there would be a sort of waning function. Uh, there's even more detailed stuff that I don't know about uh, of actual, you know, manifestation on, on cell surface that, that changes over age of, of different um, proteins that might be part of the story. Okay, um, last question. That's all we've got time for, really. Um, Given that we, we really want to know the underlying infection rate, uh, how do we improve our surveillance systems to try to make sure that we are picking up the true infection rate? Once again, the UK is the world leader. Uh, that Not just on genomics, but, you know, I th I've been arguing that the world, uh, everyone needs to, to copy the ONS infection survey or something like it so that we have a true direct measurement on a, on a, on a random sample basis of uh, infection in the community. If we had known, if we had done that, if the world had done that or financed it and had been implemented by governments in Africa, we would have known you know, a year ago just how rampant transmission was. And this idea that there wasn't a lot of COVID in Africa just would have, would have been put to rest. Uh, we would have known about the extraordinary, you know, transmission in India uh, much earlier. Um, so, you know, an infection survey seems like a really good idea. There's, there's two camps out there. One camp says we need uh, these smaller, more costly cohort studies, like the Seattle flu study. Uh, 
versus the larger random sample, repeated you know, sample uh, like the ONS infection survey. I'm a fan of the latter. The cohort studies, you get much richer information, but almost by definition because of cost, they're very small. And so for example, the Seattle flu study, other than detecting the first transmission in the US, uh, didn't really help guide local uh, understanding of the pandemic because the uncertainty intervals were, were just so large from week to week that you really didn't have a lot of guidance. So I think the ONS survey would be wonderful to see uh, replicated as a, as a model for the future. Okay, um, look, we're out of time. We've got other questions. I can get them sent on to you. If, um, but um, thank you ever so much. It was a great overview and very informative talk. And thank you for doing our uh, annual lecture, Chris. Um, and I'm sure there'll be follow-up questions directed to you as a, a result of this. So once again, thanks very much and um, hope to see you at some point face-to-face. Yeah, I would like that. Thank you so much for your, your uh, having this opportunity. Cheers. Oh, thank you. Good night or good good morning. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.